We continue with the second part of our seventh psychopharm commandment. Controlled substances shall be controlled. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast. Give me psychiatry on us since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the editor-in-chief and the author of the Depression and Bipolar Workbook. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Last week, we entered the hidden vaults of the DEA website, where they keep a list of red flags that pharmacists are supposed to resolve or report when filling controlled substances. Let's recap them. But first, a preview of the CMA quiz for this episode. One, which sleep medication is considered relatively safe in the elderly by the Beers criteria? A. Trazodone, Desiril. B. Lemborexant, Davigo. C. Amitriptyline, Elevil. D. Lodosolpidum, Ambien. Here's a recap of last week's red flags. One. Patients who avoid insurance when filling controls, using cash, check, or credit. Two, patients on high doses or multiple controls that tend to be misused together, particularly the holy trinity, a combination of benzos, opioids, and a muscle relaxant like soma that produces rapid euphoria. Three, patients who get early refills. And four, Pharmacists also look out for clinicians who prescribe high volumes of controls or prescribe a lot of controls to patients who fill them from out of state. And here are some more on the DEA's list. Getting controls from multiple providers or filling them at multiple pharmacies. Driving long distances to fill their prescriptions and picking up controls filled in another patient's name. Also, patients who ask for specific brands or refuse XR formulations. Although, with the exception of Vyvanse and the new tamper-resistant methylphenidate, Astaris, most XRs can be easily converted into instant release by crushing them. Here's another one, and one that I would take seriously. Patients who refuse to let you get their old records or get input from their relatives. You can't be flying blind when prescribing controls. And if they do end up misusing their medication, it's usually going to be those very same relatives who are going to know first and who are going to turn you in to the boards or the DEA. When pharmacists see suspicious behavior, they have to resolve it, which usually means contacting the prescriber to find out what is going on. Ultimately, controlled substances can only be filled if the pharmacist satisfies this definition in their mind, which is supplied by the DEA. Here it is. The medication must be issued for a legitimate medical purpose by an individual practitioner acting in the usual course of his or her professional practice. That's from the Code of Federal Regulations 1306, Section 4. But what is legitimate medical purpose? It means the drug is considered safe and effective for a specific condition. In theory, that should apply to all prescriptions, but in reality, you know that it doesn't. For example, 
Once I inherited a man with panic disorder who had responded very well to mirtazapine and olanzapine from a former physician after he had tried lots of more reasonable options. Now, neither of those meds, olanzapine and mirtazapine, have anything like good evidence in panic disorder, but I kept him on them empirically based on his own past response. Now, suppose instead that he had presented on dexedrine and hydrocodone for panic and told me that those were the only medications that helped. That would be more difficult to justify. The ideal justification is FDA approval, like clonazepam or alprazolam for panic disorder, lorazepam or temazepam for insomnia. Beyond that, practice guidelines or a positive controlled trial might suffice. Outside of that, it's the Wild West, and you best have some cover. Back to the red flags. The DEA has advised pharmacists to look out for high doses of controlled meds. But what is a high dose? The FDA is not always clear on this either. Take Adderall. It is FDA approved up to 60 milligrams a day in narcolepsy. But the labeling is vague on whether the maximum dose is 40 or 60 milligrams in ADHD. Here's what it says. Only in rare cases will it be necessary to exceed a total of 40 milligrams per day. And while that's not a hard and fast line, it's actually consistent with the evidence. The pivotal trial that got Adderall XR FDA approved in adult ADHD tested three doses, 20, 40, and 60 milligrams per day. Surprisingly, all three brought about the same benefit. It was only on a secondary analysis that the 60 milligrams worked better, and only in a subgroup with the most severe levels of ADHD. For methylphenidates like Ritalin and Concerta, the upper limits are more clear, but they vary by formulation, with higher doses allowed for those with longer durations. As a general rule, the maximum dose equates to 20 milligrams methylphenidate every three to four hours. Upper limits for benzodiazepines are less clear. The FDA gives usual dose ranges like two to five milligrams per day for alprazolam, Xanax, two to six milligrams per day for lorazepam, Ativan, and one to two milligrams per day for clonazepam, clonopin. But they then go on to say that higher doses may be needed in rare cases, up to 10 milligrams per day for lorazepam and alprazolam, and up to four milligrams per day for clonazepam. The guidance is rough, but the consequences are harsh. What is a clinician to do? Keep in mind that the FDA authorizes these high doses in rare cases. So as long as you're not going that high for most of your patients, you ought to be okay. And if you do go that high, document the rationale in the chart and add a note in the prescription so the pharmacist is not alarmed. One thing that I would avoid is justifying high doses by saying the patient must be a rapid metabolizer, particularly if you haven't done any kind of genetic testing on that. Rapid metabolizer status is actually very rare much more rare than its counterpart poor metabolism, which raises drug levels. And with the stimulants, we don't have any evidence that rapid metabolism is even relevant to their blood levels. Stimulant metabolism is complex and poorly understood. The studies are few, 
And it likely occurs through multiple pathways in one of the few studies out there blocking the main metabolic enzyme, CYP2D6, made absolutely no difference in methylphenidate levels. With the benzodiazepines, the CYP interactions are better understood. But if you expect that the patient's benzo levels are going to be significantly altered by a drug interactions or a genetic difference in CYP metabolism, it's better to switch them to a benzo that's not going to be affected as correcting the dose is too much of an inexact science to start playing with controlled substances. Lorazepam, Ativan, is often the safer bet in these cases since it doesn't go through the CYP system. Patients will often say they metabolize meds quickly, but we shouldn't accept that as science. That's what makes controlled substance prescriptions so difficult. We can't just accept the patient's report at face value like we do when dosing antidepressants. These drugs are inherently rewarding for all of us, not just for people with substance use disorders. Most patients will say they feel better at a higher dose of Xanax or Adderall, but that doesn't mean it's treating their panic or ADHD any better. Here's a tip. I often inherit patients who come in for their first visit on high doses of stimulants, like Adderall up to 120 or 160 milligrams a day, that sort of thing. I'll let them know that I can't prescribe that much and why. Besides the cardiac effects, high doses of stimulants are also neurotoxic. And I'll show them a picture of what that neurotoxicity looks like in the brain. We then lower the stimulant slowly, perhaps by 10 milligrams every month, toward the therapeutic range. And while I do that, I'll have them rate their symptoms on a self-rated ADHD scale, like the ASRS, at every visit. Here's what happens. Patients, of course, are afraid to lower the med. They tell me that they can't possibly manage their work or life without it. And indeed, at every visit, they say they are doing worse on the lower dose. But here's the surprise. Their self-rated scale usually improves as the dose goes down. More is not better with stimulants. High doses make people more perseverative. They overthink things, doubt their decisions, and have trouble shifting gears. They are less spontaneous. But high doses do make people more confident, even euphoric. As the dose is lowered, patients are not going to feel as good, but they might function better. Higher doses also carry greater risks with benzos. Tolerance and withdrawal are worse when patients take higher doses, as is the risk of traffic accidents, falls, and cognitive problems. And those risks are greater in the elderly. All this talk about controlling controlled substances is not just about catching people who misuse substances and protecting your license. These are risky drugs. That is why they are controlled, and the risks are greater for all controls in the elderly. Biologically, old age begins at 50, but we'll use 55 to 65 as a cutoff, with the lower number for patients who are in poor physical health. That is when the risks go up 
We're talking about things like falls from low blood pressure or imbalance, cognitive problems, including delirium, anticholinergic effects, particularly from tricyclics or antipsychotics, and cardiac problems from stimulants or meds that prolong the QTC. The Beers criteria is a good place to start here. It highlights meds that are problematic in the elderly. And the beers are particularly harsh on sleep meds. Most sleep meds are dinged on the beers list. Benzos and Z-hypnotics like Zolpidem, Ambien, these cause falls, memory problems, and traffic accidents. Even Trazodone is not safe. In a cohort study of over 300,000 patients with insomnia from 2022, Trazodone had a greater risk of falls than the benzos and the Z-hypnotics. Here's a list worth memorizing. It's the sleep meds that are considered reasonably safe in the elderly by the beers criteria. First, CBT insomnia. Well, that's not a sleep med, but let's not forget it. Then, Romeltion, Roserum, the melatonin agonist, which is now generic. And then the orexin antagonists, Doritorexint, Lemborexint, and Suvorexint. Then there's melatonin, which is a prescription in many countries, but it's over-the-counter in the U.S. Melatonin is dosed at around 1 to 3 milligrams at night. And there is also a study where melatonin worked better in the elderly when it was taken with magnesium, 225 milligrams, and zinc, 11.25 milligrams. Both of those minerals enhance endogenous release of melatonin. The beers also give the green light to two antidepressants that are often used for insomnia, doxepin, 3 to 6 milligrams, and mirtazapine, 7.5 to 15 milligrams. Although mirtazapine does come with the risk of hyponatremia and falls. Note that none of the tricyclics are approved by the beers, and doxepin, which is a tricyclic, is only approved in the very low doses used for sleep. If insurance doesn't cover those low doses of doxepin, also called Silenor, you can get them low cost in the liquid form of the medicine. With stimulants, we are really in uncharted territory with the elderly. None of the randomized controlled trials of stimulants and ADHD enrolled patients over age 50. The data we have is limited to a few retrospective chart reviews, and those generally use lower doses, about half of what we tend to see in adults. The elderly are more prone to cardiac side effects on stimulants, and they may get a therapeutic effect at lower doses. The blood-brain barrier is more permeable in older age, allowing more stimulants to pass through to the CNS. At least that is what we see in primate studies. Human data is lacking. ADHD can continue into old age, and just because those patients are retired doesn't mean the symptoms aren't affecting their personal life, not to mention their driving. But we want to make sure we're not over-medicating them or using stimulants to treat other problems like age-related cognitive decline. They don't work for that. Dr. Aiken, we've talked about red flags, but what do you do when you see them? Do you just stop the medicine? First, 
talk to the patient. Don't accuse them of misuse, but let them know the facts that you have before you and that they make it hard for you to continue the medication. You might stop the medication or you might do something else to address it, like a random urine drug screen or bringing the family in to get collateral information. Unless the patient already has red flags for misuse, like they have a history of substance use disorder or of past overdoses, I'm usually going to give them one warning before I stop the medicine. And I do not end care with these patients. I just tell them that I can't prescribe the controlled substance, but that I will continue to help them in other ways, including tapering off the drug if needed, while we look for other options. The bottom line, we're entering a new era of oversight with controlled substances, and you need to let patients know about these guardrails up front. They may be used to a collaborative approach with antidepressants and antipsychotics, but they shouldn't expect that same degree of collaboration with controls. The DEA has notified pharmacists of red flags to watch for, like the holy trinity combination of benzos, opioids, and muscle relaxants. And while we would have liked for the DEA to notify us directly, we're glad that information is on their website, even if it's buried behind a dozen links. We need to know what the DEA expects us to look out for when prescribing controls. And now for the study of the day. A few months ago, a group of psychiatrists at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine sent a 60-page report to the World Health Organization. Their goal was to get methylphenidate on the list of essential medications, a list that recognizes the necessity of Prozac, benzos, antipsychotics, but no treatments for ADHD. They failed. The WHO rejected the application on the grounds that the long-term risks and benefits of methylphenidate are not clear enough. The studies are biased by industry sponsorship and a blind that is easy to break by the known effects of the medications. And nearly all of the studies on stimulants lasted no more than three months, while stimulants are increasingly taken for a lifetime. Those were the WHO's concerns, and I sympathize with them. You'll notice we often report on the expansion of ADHD diagnoses and the overuse of stimulants here. But today, we have something different to report. It's not a human study, but it's close. It's a landmark, long-term study of methylphenidate on the primate brain. Researchers at the FDA's Toxicology Center gave high and low doses of methylphenidate to primates for 12 years, starting in their adolescence, the equivalent of a lifetime of dosage. At the end, they abruptly stopped the medication and looked for every kind of change they could in the primate's brain, blood flow, regional metabolism, dopamine transporters, etc. Reassuringly, they found no evidence of toxicity even at five times the clinical dose. In fact, there were no differences at all between the placebo and the methylphenidate groups after the drug was stopped. 
That is reassuring for people who take long-term methylphenidate for ADHD, but I'd be careful about translating those findings to the amphetamines like Adderall and Vyvanse. Most studies of amphetamines find evidence of neurotoxicity in primates, usually in high doses, but there are a few that found that problem in normal doses. To learn more, check out our Carlat webinar, Amphetamine versus Methylphenidate. It's free at thecarlatreport.com. Get daily research updates like this through Dr. Aiken's LinkedIn or Twitter feed at Chris Aiken MD. Start collecting CME credits for this episode through the link in the show notes or subscribe to the journal online and get $30 off with the promo code PODCAST. The Carlat Report is one of the few CME publications that depends entirely on subscribers. Thank you for helping us stay free of commercial support.